the trick of working in any system is to recognize which particular parts of what you find are idiosyncratic and which parts are hints at or ways into general principles. And I think the most effective scientists are the ones who really have learned to distinguish between, you know, preparation idiosyncrasies and big picture ideas. The problem that most preoccupies me now is trying to understand how all these perturbations that an animal sees or goes through, how they leave traces that could be completely cryptic until you stress it. That means you're getting perfectly normal looking rhythms, um, but there are things that have changed that you don't reveal until you give another strong perturbation and you realize it's different. This is Brain Inspired. Eve Martyr runs the Martyr Lab at Brandeis University, where she studies the modulation of neural networks. She's my guest today. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul. Eve's name and work almost always comes up when discussing the challenge of understanding how large networks of neurons, or units in the case of deep learning, produce the cognitive functions and behaviors we're interested in explaining in terms of those networks. The reason why her name always comes up is because of her work on a rather small network of neurons. It happens to be in the stomach of crabs and lobsters, the stomatogastric nervous system. These are networks of about 30 neurons, with the types of neurons and their connections well mapped out, and the neurophysiological properties of the neurons well understood. And this STG network uh, produces rhythmic or oscillatory outputs important for the life of the crab or lobster. And the network manages to function under a wide range of sets of parameters, under a wide range of environmental conditions. One thing this means is that nervous systems are robust and resilient, which of course is a good thing. But it also means it's nearly impossible to look at a network and infer how it's producing its output. And if that's the case for a network of 30 neurons, what hope do we have with networks of millions of neurons? So her work, for example, raises concerns about the time and energy and money being spent to map out connectomes, the structures of neural networks, in the hopes that the structure will tell us all about its function. As Eve says, the structure is necessary to understand function, but absolutely insufficient. So we discuss that, we discuss factors that contribute to network resilience, like homeostasis, plus how even though the networks are resilient, they start to fail in different ways when they're pushed into different modes, and how this could be bad under conditions of climate change or trauma and other challenges that cause underlying changes in the network that we can't appreciate until it's too late. You can learn more in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 130. And on the website, you can also choose to support the podcast through Patreon uh, and join the Discord community where we discuss topics from the episodes. And we're also having more regular live Zoom discussions about neuro AI uh, type topics. So check that out at braininspired.co. I'd been wanting to have Eve on for a long time, so I was grateful to finally be in her presence. Enjoy. How much of a problem is it? Well, first of all, do you consider yourself a famous neuroscientist? Um, I'm probably a moderately famous neuroscientist. <laughs> okay. There are people who are more famous than I am, and there are people who are not as famous as I am. Within certain circles, I'm probably pretty famous, but in terms of the lay world, I'm probably not so much. Well, right. Would you consider, within the neuroscience world, would you consider yourself or prefer to consider yourself famous or legendary, if you had to choose? <laughs> I wouldn't want to choose. <laughs> so, legendary so, has a lot of um, meaning. Yeah. Well, uh, does that kind of status, though, I mean, that, that's chosen for you, I suppose, but, um, you know, you're just incredibly busy, and with that kind of status comes lots of responsibilities. Did you ever want all these responsibilities of having to do silly podcasts like you're doing right now, etc.? 
Um, hopefully this will not be a silly podcast. Hopefully well. <laughs> this will be an educational podcast. I do these things now in the hopes of maintaining some amount of excitement and imagination and optimism in the younger generation. Um, that's precisely why I do them. Yeah. You know, I hear from young students or from students fairly often saying, I heard this and it made me want to do neuroscience. So that's why I did them. Well, that's, that's good. You're going out to the right people today then, hopefully. So uh, you've done tons and tons of work on the crustacean stomatogastric nervous system. Um, but before we, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about that work and the implications and so on. Before we do that, though, I'm curious um, how you would characterize how your interests have changed over your career. Did you begin thinking that you were going to be working on a relatively, quote unquote, simple um, part of the nervous system like this? Or uh, did you always have, um, or did you start off with a broader picture in mind? And then, like many uh, scientists, the questions become narrower and narrower, although you're, you know, the implications of your work are gigantic. I actually think I've been fairly steady in terms of the kinds of problems that interest me. As an undergraduate, I was quite fascinated by what was then the popular topic of um, denervation supersensitivity, which looked at the role of um, activity and neurotransmitter on receptor number and localization. So I always was attracted to things at the interface between activity and cellular molecular regulation at synapses and neurons. There was at muscles. Um, I, I have a fairly well-developed sense that we can come back to this later, but I think it's a, a very important theme, which is I have to work on something which has enough or a little enough ambiguity so that I can understand what the problems are. And I think in neuroscience people, I like to I sometimes think about people as fractionating themselves on a gradient of how much ambiguity they can tolerate. <laughs> and there are some people who can only work on single proteins and other people can only work on consciousness. And we all, <laughs> we all sort of search the level that's most comfortable. And um, I run into problems when I start thinking about large numbers of neurons. I don't know how to think about them. Well, okay, so you're more comfortable with, with a smaller degree of ambiguity, but some of the implications that your work has um, revealed seems to put you in a higher realm of ambiguity, given, and, and you know, we'll talk about what those are, but do you feel like, uh, I mean, it's still like a 30 or so neuron system, structurally, that you're, that you're right. working on. But no, there's a difference between the ambiguity of what you're doing and understanding the general principles that you find. So my goal has always been to use a small number of neurons um, that can be identified, recorded from, whose dynamics can be described carefully, and then use those to try and look for general principles. Um, because I think often when you have large numbers of neurons, it can be very difficult to see the general principles because they're hidden and all sorts of other complications. So the trick is to is to work at a level of ambiguity that still has enough mystery in it so you can learn new things, um, but that is well enough defined so you can find those general principles. And, the, and, and I should just like to say, going forward, the trick of working in any system is to recognize which particular parts of what you find are idiosyncratic and which mm. parts are sort of hints at or weighs into general principles. And I think the most effective scientists are the ones who really have learned to distinguish between, you know, preparation idiosyncrasies and big picture ideas. Very good. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about what you do. So um, you have fishermen who will not tell you where they fish 
uh, deliver crustaceans to your lab. Why is this just a fisherman thing? Because they don't want to get it's a competitive industry, and they don't want to give away the location. Fishermen, fishermen never tell anybody where yeah. they their <laughs> catch, right? So the fishermen go out into the ocean, and they're very brave, and they've been doing this very difficult, hard job for a long time. Is it hard? Fishing for any well, when, North Atlantic use, Ocean? Don't they use cages, though, and then, then they just go bring up the cages? or do They you know? go out in small boats in the okay. cold and the dark and in yeah. the waves and the winds and the storms, and they... They are incredibly brave to fight the elements, and often they have to work very hard for not much return. So, yes, I have total admiration. Haven't you actually ever seen the movies of the storms battering the fishing boats and people hanging on for for dear life or being blown overboard? Oh, that's just Hollywood, right? (laughs) No, that's (laughs) that's the real world. And and actually in the North Atlantic on the seacoast, in... Gloucester and up to the coast of Maine and down through Bedford and all of these seagoing villages where fishing was a time-honored profession, um, there are many people who were lost. I mean, it's not uncommon that boats are lost and the Coast Guard actually rescues a fair fair number of people from capsized vessels. So anyway, on the happy note, the fishermen go out. (laughs) And then they bring their catch in, and eventually um, the catch goes to some sort of distributor. We don't buy them directly from the fishermen, they, but we buy them from just seafood distributors. In, in our case, one of them right in, on the waterfront in um, Boston, right outside of Chinatown. And we get them from there. And in, in usual days, we call them up, and they pack them in a box and call a taxi and the taxi brings them out to the lab because we're, we're about 10, 12 miles due west of hmm. Boston. In bad days, we go and get them from the distributor. Oh, I see. So wh- why is it important to, to well, ha- have you considered uh, having a facility where you raise them and breed them? I don't, even, I don't know anything about breeding and raising crustaceans, but... Clearly. Uh, <laughs> um, it's, it's tough, uh, huh? <laughs> yeah, clearly the um, the lobsters legal the minimum size lobsters are five to seven years old, and the crabs that we use, which are also adult, are also multi year old. And lobsters, for a while, we used to raise from embryos to um, small juveniles in the lab. They're incredibly difficult to raise. Um, Crabs are pelagic, which means they swim freely in the ocean. So I don't know of anybody who's actually hmm. raising crabs in a laboratory environment. So I naively thought that that your primary reason for, for doing it that way was so that they would have an ecologically valid life, essentially, and have been exposed to uh, natural environments. Well, you can say that's why. Okay, good. <laughs> I will. <laughs> but um, but that's, that's one obvious advantage of working on wild caught animals they've had a full rich and probably difficult for some of them life out there in the wild um but additionally it's it's also they're slow growing animals and so Mm -hmm. it's not a fun thing to imagine raising enough animals that take five to seven years to to reach um full size before you study them. I don't even know what would be more expensive. It seems like a lab, keeping them in a lab would be more expensive perhaps than just purchasing them. I'm like, Absolutely. What, what you, uh, would it, yeah. No doubt. It's it's okay. not even in the same ballpark. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So, um, so you get these crustaceans, lobsters, and most recently crabs mostly, right? Or do you still- Mostly. Uh, we work on both, but, yeah. but a lot of the stuff we do now is on crabs. And then you prepare their stomatogastric nervous system, which means you dissect it out, right? Uh, and, and the reason you like that preparation is because it has around 30 neurons. And like you were saying, you like low ambiguity, and it's a very well-defined system. And this is sort of a, um, an oscillatory rhythmic uh, system involved in digestion, right? Right. So it's an example of what's called a central pattern generator. It's a group of neurons that 
produces rhythmic motor patterns. And in the case of the stomatogastric nervous system, the ganglion itself has about 26 neurons in crabs, about 30 neurons in lobsters. And each neuron can be individually identified on the basis of its projection to the muscles of the stomach. And it's the ease of identification and the ease of being able to record from all of them simultaneously that makes it such an ideal preparation. Do you worry that, um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, concern now or hype around having ecological validity in scientific preparations, right? Um, And so when you dissect that out, do we consider it still ecologically valid, uh, even though it's not part of the rest of the functioning organism? Well, there have been... Since this preparation was first um, studied in the 1970s, late 60s, early 1970s, some of the earliest work involved putting electrodes in the intact animal, in the muscles, and then later on the nerves. And it turns out that the motor patterns that are produced in the intact animal resemble very, very closely what we see in the dissected nervous system. So the other reason why this preparation was so attractive um, 50 or 60 years ago was precisely because the dissected fictive motor patterns, as they're called, are so close to the actual motor patterns in the, in the alive animal that people found comfort that they could study the mechanisms that li- were likely relevant to what was happening in the animal just because the, the patterns resembled so, resembled the two sets of patterns resembled each other so closely. And, and do you still agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've gone back every now and then to do work in vivo, and nothing has given us pause. Um, most recently, in 2014, we published a paper that involved um, in vivo recordings and in vitro recordings and comparing the two, and they were very, very similar. Okay, good. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, the conundrum that you have thrown neuroscience into uh, with these long series of experiments that you've performed. So, uh, in principle, um, neuroscience has long thought, right, that as long as if we have a circuit wiring diagram, we can say something about the function of the circuit. And I'm, I'm going as big picture as I can here, and we can um, narrow it down uh, as we go, I suppose. But uh, a large part of what your results suggest is that you can't look at a wiring diagram and say almost anything about its function. Would that be an accurate summary? Um, not quite. I would turn it around a little bit and say by 1980, we had a wiring diagram for the stomatogastric nervous system. And people, and there were wiring diagrams for a number of other small nervous systems mm-hmm. of potential pattern generators. And it was pretty clear that they were all different even though some of the motor patterns they produced were pretty similar. Some of the initial early workers were very upset because they thought that there'd be a sort of generic um, central pattern generator connectivity that would work for all animals, and they were sort of disappointed when that turned out not to be true. I never expected it to be true, so I didn't understand why they were disappointed. But I think what we've been going through in the 40 or something years that we've been post-connectome, if you will, (laughs) um, we have learned that the connectome or the wiring diagram, as we used to call it, is absolutely necessary and completely insufficient. So you can't understand how a sticker works without a wiring diagram Hmm. um, because the wiring diagram, even though it doesn't necessarily tell you exactly how it's going to work, it constrains um, the kinds of things that can arise. So, um, you know, it says here the wiring diagram gives you a set of possibilities, and then you have to understand how those possibilities get turned into actuals, um, because not anything is possible. Not everything is possible. But in a system of 30 30- well-defined neurons connected with with well-defined levels of 
neurotransmitters, ion channels within some range, although it's a fairly wide range, I understand. Uh, That set of possibilities is vast, right? Yes and no. You know, it's it's always the case that that um, there are lots of different motor patterns that can be produced, but they're all explicable. And I think that's that's the key feature. They really don't transgress. I mean, when when you start seeing motor patterns that are enough different, you know that something's broken. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so, often what, what you spend your time doing is trying to crash the system, right? To right, push it to its limits. Right, right, right. And the system is extremely stable. That, I mean, what's, it's actually fairly hard to crash them. Is that frustrating or is that uh, optimistic and hopeful and uh, oh, it's amazing? Oh, and hopeful. I mean, yeah. it's, it tells you that even though each animal has a different set of conductance densities and a different amount of transmitter and whatever, that they found a solution that's good enough for the animals to live out there in the world. And it means that every human, every healthy human has a different brain, but those brains generally allow most of us to breathe and to walk and to run and hopefully to hear and see and think, even though, and you can do that with many different solutions. So I I think it's, it's very gratifying to know how the differences do not preclude very similar behavior. So some, one of my listeners wanted me to ask you what it is that we actually can take from structure, uh, if it's not simply, we can't look at the diagram and think, well, that's the function that would come out of that structure. And what you're saying is we we can constrain the space of possibilities. Absolutely. You can constrain the space of possibilities. We don't exactly know how that's constrained, but you constrain the space of possibilities and you make some outputs far more probable than others. So if you have reciprocal inhibition, two cells that each inhibit each other, the probabilistic likelihood is that they're going to be firing in alternation or out of phase. Mm-hmm. Now, they can sometimes fire at the same time, but often they won't. Would it be fair to say that there then are motifs that uh, it's a space of possible motifs? that we would, Is that a way that we can constrain what's possible? So many years ago, Peter Getting, who was the then leader in the field of small nervous systems in the mid-80s, he was working on a, a mollusk called Tritonia, and he was looking for what he called building blocks, circuit building blocks. Mm-hmm. So he was looking for either principles at the single cell level or at the small circuit level that would have that would sort of create the library of mechanisms <laughs> that then could be combined to, to build circuits with many different behaviors, but you would expect that, you know, the transient outward current would usually do X or reciprocal inhibition would usually do Y or bursting neurons could give you certain kinds of behaviors, etc. And so I think he wrote a very beautiful paper first in one in 85 and then one in 1989, where he articulated this concept of building blocks, which was his way of articulating the kind of almost the alphabet of how circuits could work. And nothing that's been done since has changed the what he said in 1989 or the way his way of thinking it. I mean, people are still using similar kinds of reasoning as they look in in both small and large circuits. So that's going from structure to function. Is there anything that we can say going the opposite way? If you see a function, can you say anything about the structure? So structure is necessary, but not sufficient to understand function. What about the uh, opposite way? I mean, I suppose if you see a rhythmic pattern, there must be a central pattern generator-like structure, right? Yeah, but that could be of all different kinds. Yeah. That does you don't necessarily know how that's built. Um I think it's probably that inverse problem is probably very hard. I think I wouldn't want to try and go in that direction. 
people, I think that there's a route to a lot of mistakes going in that direction. Mm. Okay. That's almost a more theoretical direction, I suppose. I mean, theorists would do that. They would say, what would be the likely circuit? I mean, you could take that as a theoretical study. You could say, here's a behavior. Now find a circuit that will give you that. And then you could use some sort of genetic algorithm to try and find the best fit to producing that. And different people might find very different structures. There could be very different circuits. And then, and then you're forced to say, well, which is the actual one? If you care about that. And this, this goes back to the whole issue of why people do theory and what they're trying to achieve. If you're trying to build a brain for a robot, it doesn't matter how a nervous system actually does it. If you're trying to understand how a nervous system does it, then it matters a lot how it does it. Well, it depends on the kind of brain, the kind of robot you want to build, right? If you want to build an AGI robot, it might matter, or maybe it might not. We don't, we don't know, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think if you only want to build a robot to do a task, it's not clear to me that you have to be defined by neurobiologically plausible rules. How has theory uh, affected you? In some sense, what you do is very bottom up, right? Even by you know, like running millions of simulations to see what um, sets of parameters might give rise to similar behaviors. That's kind of a bottom-up approach. But has theory, um, how much has theory uh, inspired your work, or how much do you do you dabble in the realm of, of theoretical principles? Um, because, well, I, I ask because these days in neuroscience, everyone's saying we need better theory, right? It, that's what we're missing is great theories. And I'm talking, that's generally about, you know, the brain's writ large, right? Brain function, grand theory of the brain, et cetera. Um, but I'm wondering if that applies to your work as well. I buy into that. <laughs> I, think, I think what theory can give you are very clear answers to how you might build a nervous system to do a given task or set of tasks or switch between a bunch of tasks. Um, I, I personally don't think we should be looking for the grand theory of the brain. I think we could be looking for a really good model for that explains how the basal ganglia work. I think we could be looking for um, a pretty good model for how the cerebellum works. I think we could be looking for um a really good model for a lot of things, but I just don't now I'm sure that people disagree with me. I know that people disagree with me, but I just don't know what a theory of the a grand theory of the brain, what, what that would tell you or what it would be because the brain is doing so many different things with so many different parts. They're all connected to each other, but you know, the rules that you need to get the respiratory centers to work right and to be stable and robust are different from the kinds of rules that you would need to get mm. cortex to store a memory. I mean, you might have some of the same molecular components and you probably have learning in the respiratory center as well, but it's just not clear that there'd be some global theory that would give you both respiration and, you know, memory of your grandmother from 50 years ago. That said, there are some basic pieces of biology that, that, that go across, but those tend to be the, the, more, the more basic parts of the cell biology of neurons that are totally general. So, for example, if you want to understand what potassium channels do, um, they can do a lot of things, but chances are they can be used to do a lot of things in any neuron that you want to place them. I mean, they, they, they function that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that's not what the people who are talking about the grand theories of the brain are talking about. They're not talking about what is a potassium channel doing to electrical excitability. The, the thing that we've done that I think is closest to a grand principle um, goes back to the, the early 90s when mm-hmm. we were trying to come up with models to explain the dynamics of single neurons. And with Gwendolyn Masson and Larry Abbott, um, we came up with what became the first 
homeostatic model to explain intrinsic excitability and the control of intrinsic excitability. And to me, the problem was very, very clear. As a biologist, we were we already had some measurements of conductance densities, and it was really hard to build a single neuron model that would actually capture the dynamics of the single neuron that the data came from. And we realized that to get the model to work right, you had to be tuning not just one kind of ion channel, not two kinds of ion channels, but six or eight kinds of ion channels at the same time. And so it became very clear that no one was thinking about the mechanism that you would need to use to coordinately tune the numbers, the densities of all the channels in a cell. And so that original homeostatic model, which said that neurons had a target excitability level and then they could regulate the number of ion channels in the membrane accordingly as they drifted away from their target activity pattern. That to me is an example of what I think is a big general principle that every cell in the brain has to, has to solve this problem of how to control its intrinsic excitability. It doesn't mean that, that all cells have to use exactly the same roles, um, but it does mean that if you want a cell to have a certain characteristic firing pattern, that there have to be ways that it can um, regulate its channel densities to do that. Um, so that's an example. If we were trying to build a computational model of an LP neuron in the, in the crab, and we ended up with what I think is one of the big, big picture insights um, in sort of cellular neuroscience. And if you say, and I believe that any neuron anywhere has to, you know, has to solve this problem. And as I said, it doesn't necessarily have to solve the problem in exactly the same way, but it has to solve this problem. Just like every animal has other big picture issues it has to solve. Is this where homeostasis uh, plays a large part? That is the homeostatic regulation of intrinsic excitability. We didn't call it that at the time. We called it activity-dependent regulation of conductances. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it was the first real homeostatic model of conductances. Obviously, uh, people have been talking about homeostasis at the, the level right. of big, big animal physiology. But we just took those the negative the, the concept of a negative feedback and a control loop to the single neuron. Some people think, speaking of uh, large theories of the brain, some some people uh, think that neuroscience has it all wrong, um, and that essentially what the brain writ large is is a is one big hierarchical series of control loops, and that we should be applying control theory to uh, study everything. So this would accord with that at least on the single neuron level, essentially. Well, but I mean, I think that's I don't think there's any intrinsic. Um, conflict certainly the brain like the body has multiple loops within loops and you know the the fascinating thing about biological systems is that they manage to put loops within loops within loops within loops without it crashing all the time which is not so trivial if you start you know just doing it as an engineer but but that is what gives rise to the resilience even in something like the uh, stg right Right. That's the resilience comes exactly from understanding those sorts of control loops at the lowest level and then seeing how how you don't do anything that comes into conflict with those loops. Um, but, you know, I think I'm not saying that control theory is the be all end all. However, it is certainly true that biological systems manage to use these sorts of negative feedback control loops very effectively over large scales in time and space. Mm. And, and, and I think biological systems do it much better than, than engineers do yet. <laughs> yet. Oh, do you, but, but you're leaving the future open for the engineers, huh? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they're smart. <laughs> and the thing is, in the beginning, they were, 
they were crippled by the fact that the computers they had to work with had limitations. And, you know, right now they're much less limited by the computational size and scale of what of the simulations they can do. So the future lies ahead. I'm thinking about technology, since you mentioned it, um, let's talk about, for wh- whatever example you want, let's say the basal ganglia, right, of a higher primate. Is Would there be, let's say, so like the dream is always you can record from all neurons, right? We can't, we don't have this technology yet, but let's say in 20 years or something, somehow we can. Would your approach, would you recommend your approach um, scaled up to something that massive and uh, interconnected? So here's where I have a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. Because if someone were to give me recordings from a million cells in the basal What game, would you do? Yeah. I wouldn't know what to look for. Yeah. yeah. Right? So now there's some very smart people who might run all sorts of different data analysis and algorithms and this and that and the other thing. But what you're looking for would be very hard to see with the raw, with your raw eyes. And I may be enough of an old fashioned old lady that <laughs> it's here's where I say I have problems with the ambiguity that comes with large numbers. Um, if I look at the raw data from any of our preparations, hmm. I can always see it in the raw data. And then we, you do it many, many times and you do complicated data analysis and whatever. But at the end of the day, I have to recover something I can see in the raw data. And in recordings from those data, I don't think I would have the ability to see anything in the raw data. So I would never know if you got it right. What's the raw data in your case? Are you talking about your favorite graph of 2020 with the ionic uh, uh, conductances? That would be one thing, or the raw data would just be the spike trains. Despite you, okay. I yeah. consider the raw data the actual physiological output, the recordings from the from the system that shows you what it's doing and when it's doing it, and and so I can look at the recordings from the thirty neurons in the stomatic ganglion. I can see if I have eight electrodes or so. I can see them all work at the same time. I can see the relationships among them. I might have to use some data analysis to look at, you know, in detail at the correlations or whatever, but I can see it all. With the eye roll, I like that. Yeah, but I can but I can see it all. Um, and there's no way I'm going to be able to see those relationships in those million neurons recorded, even if they had tags on them that told me what kinds of neurons they were. So, you know, minimally you need to have them tagged so you knew who was who, mm-hmm. and that's, that's difficult. But also, even if you knew who was who, and, you know, and, you know, other people, you know, people who are 30 years old now, they're going to say, oh, we'll be able to do this, and maybe they will. But I don't, I don't see it for me, and that's where I said, you know, I get stuck. I get mm-hmm. stuck when I try and go to large ensembles of many neurons because I'm never go- I don't know how I would know that I'd gotten it right. Has your work uh, on the STG, has it um, changed your viewpoint or changed your mind about any higher cognitive functions? Or ha- has it given you any insights into any higher cognitive functions? Or is that something that you prefer to, that you're uncomfortable with the level of ambiguity there as well? No, I think there's some things that I don't know if it's the work, our work on the SGG, but I know several things that is that, I mean, we know from psychology and we know from neural network theory that all memory is reconstructive and that I think is a really important principle that came from actually theory first. Hmm. Um, we know from all the cell biology of the neuron now our work and other people's work that every ion channel receptor turns over with in minutes and days and weeks. So we have a vision of the brain as constantly rebuilding itself. Hmm. 
And the minute you think about the brain is constantly rebuilding itself and you think about memory and cognitive processes is an emergent process of a brain that's constantly in a state of flux. Then you sort of say there's this um, really, really interesting set of problems as you think about a brain that's constantly having to rebuild itself, but also having to constantly maintain stable function and long-term memory. Right. And so it's a fast, that's the conundrum. To my, to my mind, that's the conundrum. And I think we see it far more clearly. To me, I see that conundrum much more clearly now than 50 years ago. But because we know so much more about cellular mechanisms and we know so much more about um, how memory works. But I, I think that that really, to me, is the big, big mystery how you have a brain which is rebuilding itself totally. You know, there's probably not a single potassium channel in my brain today that was there 30 years ago. Mm. Um, and and yet, you know, I can remember learning north, south, east, and west on um, when my mother had me walking up and down Broadway on the Upper West Side, right? She taught me that uptown was north and downtown was south and the Hudson was west and Central Park was east. And, you know, that that was with me when I was three years old and it's with me now. Um, Is that what you picture when you when you orient yourself? You picture the avenue absolutely, and the... Absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's how she taught me the principle of, <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of maps. I mean, she taught me orientation maps with Central Park and... and uh, but, but that potato... But that potassium uh, uh, channel is gone. Potassium is long gone, and yeah. that map is still there. And so, to my mind, and there was a specific instant that my mother taught me that, right? So I have a memory of her teaching me this, mm -hmm. and that memory now, obviously, that memory is somehow they're stored in cells that have completely turned over all their cellular constituents, although many of those neurons are probably still there. So that to me is the one of the big imponderables. Um, why that was such an important memory that <laughs> I mean, she was walking with me in the middle of the summer saying, You go north and south, and still very vivid, probably. Still very vivid. But you're reconstructing it right now. I am, but I think I'm probably getting it approximately correct. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm unlike sure you many are. Mem unlike many, <laughs> many memories, which are not, right. that one is probably right. <laughs> so, I mean, this, in, in some sense, that it must give you your own research then must give you hope. Um, so, you know, thinking about the resilience of the STG system and uh, its adaptability in different environments, right, where you can get the same rhythm or very similar rhythms or, you know, even if they're different, they're still functionally rhythms uh, out of very different uh, setups, very different sets of, of parameters. So that must, in some sense, give you hope that we will have, be able to have a handle on this sort of thing using that kind of same principle. Um, that's the assumption, yeah. That <laughs> you, uh, so it has to be that way, right? Because you can't have... Well, yes, by definition. Neurons, yeah. By definition, you have how many billion neurons in your brain, and most of them are the ones that were there that you were born with, and none of the molecular components... Are really the same and you know it's not an accident that that it's your brain and your heart that have these long-lived cells that that have the same basic problem hmm. of maintaining constant you know your heart again doesn't turn over cells but it has to turn over its ion channels and it has to maintain yeah. a very constant function it's terrifying to me every time I think about how my heart can never stop or else I will, you know, because it really Your goes for a long time. Stop for a long, short periods of time. Well, you know, it can't, st okay, yeah. Glug, but glug, your, heart, your heart has, just to remind you, your heart has so many ways of maintaining its function. They do a very good job speaking <laughs> about degenerate mechanisms there are yeah. many degenerate mechanisms that keep your heart working. Well, that's that's good to know. I appreciate you soothing me. I'm not worried about your heart. Oh, I'm a little worried about it, but that's okay. I'm aging, you know. 
one of the things that you have found, and among the many, obviously, is in trying to essentially crash the uh, STG system, you've taken um, crustaceans from warm winters, colder winters, and the variability in the environment uh, leads to a different range of adaptable solutions, right? Yeah. Uh, what? In, in sort this of a makes me very sad, by the way. That's sad. Well, I know that you're concerned about the environment, but go, go ahead. What? Well, actually, the first time in 2012, when Sarah Haddad got our first set of recordings from these very warm watered animals, and I talked about them at the FENS meeting, I had a graduate student come up to me and there were tears rolling down her Oh, oh no. Saying, oh, climate change and what's going to happen? So the reason it worries me is because we see hidden and cryptically so what, you know, if we just were to record control data at 11 degrees the way we usually do, we would never know that something had changed. Mm-hmm. And so the problem that most preoccupies me now is trying to understand how all these perturbations that an animal sees or goes through, how they leave traces that can be completely cryptic until you stress it. But I mean that... But- That that means you're getting perfectly normal-looking rhythms, um, but there are things that have changed that you don't reveal until you give another strong perturbation and you realize it's different. Mm. And so that, I think, is a big lesson for for the human brain, that if you have a child or an adult who's perfectly healthy and is not terribly badly stressed but still has lots and lots and lots of you know, experiences and maybe some bad experiences, you don't necessarily know that there have been some long-lived changes in the brain until you come in and this is the way I think about PTSD. You know, you come in with a very bad stressor. Someone has seemingly recovered. You don't know that it's hidden. There are cryptic changes that are only revealed when you come back in with the the stress or something as similar to the stress that evokes these these changes. And so, so yeah. yeah, so this is a problem I think is a really, really deep problem for understanding animals and humans and how populations crash and don't crash and how humans, individual humans crash and don't crash. And I think, for example, just to riff, I don't think we're going to know for quite a while what these two years of COVID crap have done oh my God. to us, much less our kids, but I mean to us even, you yeah. know, just they've changed all sorts of ways that we have of looking at the world. On the other hand, though, I mean, one of the optimistic takeaways from your work is the amount, the incredible adaptability that organisms do have, right? I was going to ask right. you about evolution and and your view on on the fan, you know, the fantastic mechanism or fantastic uh, phenomenon of, of evolution. W- what you were just saying makes me think that uh, you you um, are currently thinking that we're almost walking our w- way into uh, a tighter constraint of the possibilities of our adaptability, right? And and so maybe we started out with this really wide range of adaptability in in a perfect environment. But then by putting these different stressors, the climate change, et cetera, it narrows the space so of possibilities. Of the things, I don't know. One of the things that we're trying to figure out how to study now is to ask the question, if you have an organism that is very resilient to stressor one, to perturbation one, will it be necessarily more or less resilient to a different perturbation? So you mm-hmm. can imagine that to be very resilient to temperature, you have to pay the price of being less resilient to salinity or less resilient to pH. And so, um, or maybe there's a hierarchy of, you know, it's more important to be resilient to one thing than to the other. So what we're trying to do now is to set up, um, we try and set up scenarios where we look at multiple stressors, multiple perturbations, then see if there seems to be an interaction and see if there appears to be a hard trade-off or whether some animals are just good at everything and or whether or not. So we don't know the answer to that, but I think this goes a lot to the question that you were just asking. Um, 
which is, are we narrowing possibilities? Are we just going down a different path? I mean, so I suspect, I mean, if I had to guess from our earliest data, I would say that, that the resilience to different stressors is uncorrelated that you don't you can't necessarily predict whether an animal will be resilient to pH change on the basis of how resilient it is to temperature. Mm-hmm. Although of course in the in the wild those those are correlated variables, but that's a separate issue. But but that's one of the things that I think remains for us to try and figure out. Because that is something that is relevant to how humans deal with all different kinds of environmental stressors. Well, I know that, you know, I, I think it was a particularly warm winter, for example, and the uh, crustaceans that you were pulling out there showed a higher resilience. They were harder to crash in some respects, right? Um, but then you, the caveat was that you didn't know if those were just the survivors through the evolutionary uh, funnel. Right. So we've had that, we've had that result sort of several times now, really warm winters giving rise to mm-hmm. high crash temperatures. Um, the, the worst of it is that the water temperature is sliding up. And so in 2012, um, it was an unusual result, and now it's becoming more usual. So we're now starting to look at, um, we get, data from the NOAA buoy 16 miles out in the ocean for, for average water temperature, and we plot that against various subject measures. That's and, the closest you can get, huh, to, to knowing how their environment... You don't know where the <laughs> hell these guys come from. It doesn't matter. 16 miles out is... It's not... It's probably reasonable. You just need to put a tracker on the... Like, slip a tracker in the fisherman's pocket, right? So we actually once tried to... Um, I have a, a colleague whose son was a lobster fisherman. And he bought a little computerized thing to put on his pots. And he was supposed to collect for us. And, and we'd know the temperature and we'd know when and where and everything. He brought animals in once and then he disappeared with our tracker. Ah, uh, yeah. And like huh. I said, you know, 22-year-old fishermen are not necessarily reliable. Can't trust them. No. Trust them. <laughs> so. It was not a very expensive device, but I was sort of, he obviously got bored. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. But, but I mean, but isn't that in some sense the way evolution works? I mean, is this something to fret over or is it something to celebrate that there are lobsters that can survive and thrive and that this gives rise to the new breed of lobsters when our world is boiling? Uh, there'll be there'll still be lobsters that have, you know, survived the evolutionary uh gauntlet. Um, yeah. Except it's, it's it's hard for me to judge. All of Boston's going to be underwater by then. <laughs> okay, well they'll be, they'll be closer. The crabs <laughs> will be closer to you then. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I it's um I always get nervous when I see things in the wild that are clear indications of either climate change or pollution. So for example, yeah. every couple of years we live on the waterfront. So we have an apartment which is five stories up and looks right out over it. We're on pilings and looks right over the harbor. So we see what's in the harbor a lot. So, you know, there are lots of seabirds and there's, and every now and then in May and June, we get jellyfish. And not every year, or sometimes they must be there, but we don't see very many of them. Every now and then, there's giant infestations. And then they're usually the little beautiful white ones, the moon jellies. And then, not this past year, but the year before, we had these giant, really ugly red things, whose name I can't remember. And I'm looking at it and saying, we're not supposed to see that. And then that same year, I was looking out one day, over the water, and I said, "Holy shit! There are all these dead fish. Uh-huh. So there were all these dead carp in the water. And what happened is, it was very warm, and there are carp in the Charles River. And carp need a really high oxygen level in the water, and the 
And, you know, there's less oxygen in warm water than there is in cold water. So as the water temperature goes up, the oxygen levels go down. And then if algae start growing, the algae eat the, eat the oxygen. So there was this giant, giant, giant number of carp who all died at the same time. And some of them were washing it um, underneath. And I look at that and I say, mm, this is not good. Yeah. No, I don't like seeing dead carp in the harbor. Or ugly big red things, I guess. I know, nor ugly big yeah. <laughs> ugly big red things. And these were really ugly. So um and they're poisonous. So, you know, it's you see it, right? Just like, you know, you see the the giant fires on the West Coast. It's not supposed to be happening like that. So, you know, you just don't like it. Well, of course not. Well, and you're you're working toward helping change it, correct? So yeah, you're doing your part. I'm not doing my part. You're doing your part. Yeah. What kind of car do you drive? Uh, it's a Subaru. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> it's the it's the, the it's the Colorado cockroach is what it's called. No, but I have a new one, which is a plug-in hybrid. Yeah, great. You take you're taking my parking spots up here <laughs> in Colorado, but no. yeah. <clears throat> No, yeah, the, the plug-ins always get the best. Those in the handicap spots oh, are always okay. the best spots these days. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of Teslas and electric cars out here. Yeah. So anyway. But anyway, so that's that's that. Uh I'm just curious what you if you have an opinion on the current hype or boom explosion uh in deep learning and using deep learning models to un- help understand uh brains. I think we'll survive it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is it it's a poisonous big red thing in other words. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I So there's this giant giant fad. Yeah, now it will eventually winnow itself out so there will be some very important advances that we will get that benefit from that way of thinking and those technologies and they will have thrown into the universe, a lot of not very interesting papers along the way. And I can't tell the difference yet. So in 10 years, you'll know what what really important work came from that. So one of the um, latest trends is using dynamical systems theory, you know, to talk about manifolds um, so that you, don't, you can reduce the dimension and talk about what's going on in a large population of, of neurons. Do you see that as a promising way forward in scaling up from something like a 30 neuron thing to a billion neuro th- neuron thing? Maybe. Okay. Since I don't think well about large numbers, I, I, I can't map, I can't map those very abstract manifolds back onto real, real things. So if other people can and it helps them, Great, but I don't know. Last question, Eve. I appreciate you hanging on with me here. Has your career turned out the way that you envisioned it? And if not, uh, how has it uh, been different than what you envisioned? I didn't actually envision it. Maybe that's the best way. I just kept on going a year or two at a time. I actually had no... So five years from now... You don't know what you're going to be doing. Well, five years from now, there are three possibilities. Possibility (laughs) one is I'll be dead. Possibility two is I'll still be working or possibly three. I'll have stopped working. Climate change um, stalwart. Climate change um, leader. Nah. Okay. I don't don't have that much political activism in me at that, that level anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of energy for that. In five years, hopefully I'll be uh, driving an electric car so you won't get on my case about what I drive. Well, but, uh, but my husband, of course, worries about what well, we have to do the environment to get the things that you need to build batteries. So in five years, we may decide that the battery technology is really bad in different ways for the environment. Mm. So I guess we just I guess we have to go find another planet. Forward we go. I love that solution. However, like, let's expand into space. But that's a that's another hour, I suppose. But that's also a very sad solution because it means we've just mm. destroyed our planet. Well, it doesn't have to. I think we should go anyway. Destroy or not destroy, we should go anyway. But um, hopefully, the young ones will do that. 
Thank you so much for your time, Eva. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair-